If you would, open your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, this text, or this will serve as our text this evening. Beginning in verse 30. And Lot went up out of Zoar, and dwelt in the mountain, and his two daughters with him. For he feared to dwell in Zoar, and he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he perceived not when she lay down or when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father, let us make him drink wine this night also, and go thou in and lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son, and called his name Moab. The same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger she also bare a son, and called his name Ben-Ammi, the same as the father of the children of Ammon, unto this day. Let's bow before our Lord together in prayer. Our Father, we come before you this evening a, a thankful people. How thankful we are for your mercy and your grace, your redemptive power that you have reserved for your people in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, no matter what else is going on in our lives, how much your people have to be thankful for. Oh, how we thank you for your mercy and your grace. How we thank you for a Savior who's successful, whose sacrifice completely blotted out the sin of his people, made us righteous and accepted in him. Father, we're thankful. Father, we're thankful people. And we're also a needy people. We stand in need of your mercy and your grace, your, your upholding power every second of every day. We stand in need of your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Father, we stand in need of your presence, your strength and your guidance to lead us through this life here below. Father, be with us, we pray. We're so thankful for your mercy and your grace of the past, but we beg of you that you not leave us now. Because while we're thankful, we are a needy, a poor, and a needy people. Continually dependent upon thee. And Father, I pray that this evening you give us the spirit of worship. That you'd send your spirit upon us and enable us to forget about the, the many cares and difficulties of this life. And Father, show us the good news of Christ our Savior. Reveal him to us that, that we might... See him by faith, we pray. And Father, for those who are hurting and sick, Father, we pray for them. We pray for Novi, that you'd undertake on her behalf. Others, Father, who are preparing for surgery and treatments and tests, and there's so many. 
Father, we're thankful that thou art the great physician. We pray that you'd heal, that you'd touch their bodies and heal, and that you'd give a special portion of your presence and comfort their hearts with your presence. Give them, Father, we pray grace that's sufficient for the hour. But Father, I, again, I pray that this evening you'd show us your glory. Enable us to glorify the name of Christ our Savior. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. All right, and as I told you last Wednesday, to me, Genesis 19 is probably the darkest chapter in all of the Bible. Man's sin nature is made so abundantly clear in this chapter. The sins found in this chapter are things that people have got in these sins don't talk about in public. These things just seem too shameful to talk about in, uh, in good company. Earlier this week, I told my wife, Janet, what my text was going to be tonight, and she immediately said, ooh. And quite honestly, I would dodge talking about these things if it was just me. I would dodge talking about these things if they were not found in the Word of God. Now, we need to remember that all of the Word of God is given to us for our instruction and for our learning to point us to our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might wonder, but where's Christ in the midst of all this darkness and all this vile wretchedness? Where is Christ in there? Well, I believe that the Lord's given me something from this text that will glorify our Savior and will be a help to all of us. I titled the message tonight, God Brings Good Out of Evil. Now, we just read this passage, so let me just give you a summary here of what's happened. Remember, last week we saw that the Lord came before he's going to destroy Sodom. He told Lot, now you escape from Sodom and you go to the mountain. And Lot wanted to go to this little city, Zoar. He didn't want to go all the way to the mountain. And the Lord allowed him to do that. He allowed Lot and his daughters to escape to this little city, Zoar, before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other cities of that plain. Now, after that destruction, for whatever reason, Lot did not feel safe in Zoar. So he took his daughters and he made, I guess he thought the Lord was going to destroy that place too. So he took his daughters and went to the mountain where the Lord told him to go in the first place. I thought to myself, well, I wish I'd just do what the Lord said the first time, don't you? That he ended up doing what the Lord told him to do in the first place. Now they're there in this cave and from what we read, it kind of sounds like Lot's daughters thought the whole world had been destroyed. They didn't think just Sodom and Gomorrah. They thought the whole world had been destroyed. And it looks like they think their father is the only man left alive on earth. So if they're going to have children, their father is going to have to be the father of their children too. So they come up with this plan to make their father commit incest with them. And they get their father so drunk, he doesn't even know what's going on. And they have incestuous relations with their father. And both of them become pregnant of their father. Now that is so vile. We just don't even want to think about it. I mean, I feel a little embarrassed even saying this out loud. I mean, this is vile, vile. But it's good for us to look at these things and remember, you know, you and I have the same sin nature they had here. We have the same capacity to do just 
as vile as they did here, if not worse. And we will if the Lord doesn't stop us, if he doesn't prevent us from doing it. So we got the same nature. We, should, we ought to be able to identify with what's going on here, with the, with the sin and, and depravity, because we got the same depraved nature. Now, quite honestly, I never wondered this before, but as I read this week, I read about people who were kind of wondering and debating whether or not Lot's daughters were believers. Are they righteous like Lot was, is righteous? And I don't know. I think it's an exercise in futility to try to debate that simply because Scripture doesn't say, does it? But I do know this. Lot's daughters didn't look back at Sodom like their mother did. So maybe, maybe they're believers. Maybe they were, they were righteous. I don't know. But I point that out to, to again remind us that believers are capable of any sin that unbelievers commit. Any sin. With the exception of unbelief and apostasy. It's impossible for a believer to quit believing on God. Because God won't let them. I mean, it's not because they're being strengthened in us. It's because God won't let us. And if these two girls were believers, this is what I can tell you about. Their sin was forgiven. Same way my sin's forgiven. And your sin's forgiven. But they and the whole world suffered because of the consequences of their sin. You know, we shouldn't say, well, let's sin that grace may abound because whatever, however we sin, you know, our sin will be forgiven. Paul said, God forbid, first of all, that we think that. And our sin is forgiven. Now, the, the sin of God's people is forgiven. But don't think there won't be consequences for our actions, for our sinful actions. That's what happened to these two daughters in, in the world because of them. These girls gave birth to two boys. Those sons became the head of the Moabites and the Ammonites, who both were bitter, bitter enemies of Israel for generations. Probably still are, but they just don't know they're members of that tribe anymore. They probably still are. The actions of these girls and Lot caused suffering for generations, for thousands and millions of people. Now that's sad, isn't it? I mean, that's sad. If the story ended here, that's sad and dark and depressing... And uh, we're just, we're going to go home pouting, aren't we? And you might wonder, well, preacher, can you show me any gospel in this? Is there any light? Is there any good news in this? Well, I believe I can show it to you. The only reason I can is because the Lord showed it to me. I wouldn't see, no one would see any gospel here in this chapter unless we studied the rest of Scripture to find out what does this mean. You know, if you ever want to find out what a passage of Scripture, what a verse of Scripture means, you have to compare it with the rest of Scripture to find out what it means. If we just use our logic and our supposition and say, well, this must be what that means, we're going to be wrong every time. The only way we can find out what a passage of Scripture means and how it instructs us to look to Christ is by comparing it to the rest of Scripture. So tonight I want us to see four examples of how God brings good out of evil. I'm going to start right here in our text. Number one, from this evil, we're able to see the kinsman redeemer. Now one of the very first things I think about when I think about the Moabites is Ruth. Ruth, the Moabites. You may want to turn over there to the book of Ruth. Now years after... This evil had, had taken place. 
there was a famine in the land of Israel. And a man who lived there in, uh, in Bethlehem, he lived in Judah, Bethlehem. Elimelech was his name. He took his family and left Israel and went down to the land of Moab because he heard there was bread there. And while he was there, his two sons, in direct violation of God's law, married two Moabite girls. And while they were there, Elimelech and his two sons died, leaving three grieving widows. Now, Elimelech's widow, the older of the ladies, Naomi was her name, and she said, girls, I'm going back to Israel. Now, you two girls, her daughters-in-law, she said, you stay here in your country. You marry husbands from, from your country, from your kindred. And she said, I pray God bless you, give you children and give you happy marriages. You stay here. I'm going back to Israel. One of them stayed. And one of those girls told Naomi, Naomi, I don't care where you go. I'm going with you. I don't care what you say. You cannot talk me out of going with you. So she said, all right, let's go. Here they go from Moab, walking back to Israel, to Bethlehem. They finally get there. I mean, they've been walking this whole way. They had to beg and borrow food, you know, all the way. These two ragtag, bankrupt, dirty widows show up in town. And Naomi sees some of her old friends. Some of them, they can't hardly recognize her. And then they recognize her from the, the years and the dirt and things. And, and they say, Naomi. And she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. That name means bitter. Call me bitter. For the Lord hath dealt bitterly with me. That's a sad case. These two poverty-stricken widows, nobody to provide for them, nobody to help them, no social security, no welfare, no nothing. Huh. Well, the Lord, in His goodness, provided for the poor people at that time by allowing them to go glean in the fields. They would go in the, in the fields, and after the reapers had gone through, whatever they missed or they dropped, the poor people, that, they'd pick that up, and that would be their, the way that they would uh, have food. All right, Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. That's what Ruth is determined to do. She's going to go glean in the fields. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name is Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter, and she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was, <laughs> it just so happened, she, wasn't she lucky? She just so happened to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It's the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and she hath continued even from morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence. But you abide here fast by my maidens. Let your eyes be on the field that they do reap, and you go after them. Have not I charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, 
Go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground. And she said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? Oh, Ruth went out to, to glean, and she met Boaz. And I'm telling you, this guy was some specimen. He had muscles come out of places I didn't know you could have muscles come out of. He's tall and straight, sitting on his white stallion. he got dark, thick, curly hair falling down over his shoulders, you know, and fine clothes. And here he comes riding in to see how the harvest is going. And he must be a kind man. He says to the reapers, Lord bless you. And they said back to him, the Lord bless you. And he's sitting there on his stallion. And oh my, he sees a little girl, poor girl, gleaning. And he says, who's that? He just instantly fell head over heels in love with Ruth. He loves her. And he's going to provide for her. He's going to take care of her. And everybody knows the end of the story. He's going to be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. Now, in order to be the kinsman redeemer, you had to meet three qualifications. You had to be near kin. You had to be related by blood. Second, you had to be able to pay the price. I mean, if you're going to pay a debt, stands the reason you got to have, got to have enough money to pay the debt. And thirdly, you got to be willing. To pay the debt. You know, a lot of people have the, the means to pay the debt aren't willing, are they? But you had to be all three. You had to be related. You had to be able to pay the debt. You had to be willing to pay the debt. Well, Boaz was all three of those. He was related to Elimelech, a cousin or a nephew or something. He had the wealth to pay the debt. I mean, that's no problem. He had plenty of wealth to pay the debt. And he was willing to pay it. You know why he was willing? Because he loved Ruth. He's willing to pay the debt. And Boaz redeemed everything that Elimelech lost. And he went further. He married Ruth. And he and Ruth had a little boy. She got pregnant. She had a little boy. She's in labor and the child comes out. You know, not like today where you've got um, whatever you call them, images that you see. You know, you are, everybody, you don't know what the baby is for. There they didn't. This little boy comes out. It's a boy. And Boaz and Ruth said, let's name him Obed. Well, Obed is the father of Jesse, who's the father of David. Ruth, the Moabitess, this idolater, widow, bankrupt, begging woman, is the great-grandmother of King David. Now, I'm telling you, that's a story of God's grace. <laughs> this is such a clear picture of Christ our kinsman redeemer. Christ our kinsman redeemer was made flesh. He became a man, a human being, so he could be related to the people that he came to redeem. And we had a price on our head, didn't we? Oh, he's God Almighty. He's, he's, got, he's got to wear with all to pay the price. His blood is precious. And he's willing to pay it. He's willing to pay the debt for his people. Because he loves his people. And just to make sure we get it. I love this. Later on. 
when it comes time for the disciples to, to write the Gospels. You know where you find the name Ruth? This Moabitess idolater. You know where you find her name? In the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ the Redeemer. Christ the kinsman Redeemer. Came through Ruth. <laughs> Ruth is a picture of everybody Christ came to save. He identifies with those people because he loves them. And he came to save those people. Now what Lot and his daughters did is unspeakably evil. It never should have been done. It's just really not something polite society even talks about. But they did it. And the Lord brought good out of it. He didn't just give us a picture of the kinsman redeemer through this. He gave us the kinsman redeemer himself. He brought good out of evil, didn't he? All right, the second thing I thought of was Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, you know God created the garden. He put man in it and he said, you eat all the trees you want, everything you want here except this one tree. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of it, Adam, you're going to die. Well, I don't know how long it was, but the day came, Adam took that fruit and he willfully, with his eyes wide open, knowing exactly what he was doing, rebelled against God and took that fruit and ate it. And he immediately died. I hear people talk about uh, Adam say, well, he loved Eve. You know, Eve had already eaten of the fruit, but nothing happened, did it? Because she was in Adam. She was in Adam, her federal head. Nothing happened when she ate the fruit. But boy, she sure died when Adam ate the fruit, when her federal head ate the fruit. And I've heard people say, well... Adam, Adam knew what, what was going on, but he took that fruit because he knew that, uh, that Eve would be destroyed. He was going to be with Eve. Well, I know that sounds good, doesn't it? And, and certainly Christ, knowing full well what was going to happen to him, became a man to redeem his people from their sins. But that's kind of like uh, puffing Adam up a little bit. What? There's no reason to be proud of Adam in this. He sinned willfully. And if he loved her before... Boy, after he ate that fruit, he died. He sure did hate her. He tried to throw her under the bus for God Almighty. Adam's sin brought death and sadness to the whole human race. To all of creation because he's the federal head of every one of us. And even today, I mean, I just wonder how did Adam live with that for 900 years? 900 years. Every single time he saw a person or an animal, or a plant die. He thought, I did that. And for 6,000 years after, well, I guess maybe roughly 5,000 years after, even today, every time somebody gets sick, every time somebody dies and we go down to the funeral home, it's because of Adam's sin. It's a direct result of Adam's sin. I mean, the tragedy of that dark, dark day when Adam decided to disobey God because he wanted to be his own God. Look what it caused. It caused damage and destruction everywhere. Now what Adam did, he did willfully of his own free will. But when Adam did what he wanted to do, you know what he did? He accomplished the will and purpose of God. Now, I know God's not the author of evil. I'm not saying that. 
But God did will the fall of man. That's right. We have to believe that. We have to believe that God willed the fall of man. If God is sovereign over all things, Adam didn't do something God didn't want him to do. God willed the fall of man. In that dark, dark day full of death and destruction. Now where is the good news? Where is the light of the gospel in that dark day? Well, here it is. We never would have seen God's mercy for sinners if Adam didn't sin and make us need mercy. You don't appreciate God's mercy unless you need it. Adam made us need it. We never would have seen God's mercy unless Adam made us need God's mercy. We never would have seen God's saving grace if Adam hadn't fallen in sin and made it the only way we could be saved is by grace. We never would have seen how God forgives sin. If Adam didn't fall and make us sinners and need forgiveness. We never would have seen God's wisdom. And how God is just and still justifies the ungodly. Through the obedience and the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. We never would have seen that wisdom. Unless Adam hadn't first fallen. Now. There is no excusing Adam's sin. I'm, I'm not excusing it in the least. But God sure brought evil out of it, didn't he? Adam fell, but his people weren't destroyed. Because before Adam sinned, Christ the Savior, in the eyes of the Father, is the lamb slain from the, from the foundation of the world. His sacrifice had already redeemed those people. And even though Adam fell, they could not be destroyed. Because the sacrifice was already provided. And I think now this is a, a good time to point this out. Some Somebody, some smart aleck will think, well, if every, every evil thing I do is God's will, and God's able to, to bring good out of it, well, then it doesn't matter if I sin or not. No, no, no. no. This, this, this is no excuse for sin. To say that it doesn't matter if I sin because God willed it, that's blaming God for my sin. That's blaming God's sovereignty for my sin. And to borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul, God forbid. God forbid that I blame my sin on God. God forbid that I blame my unbelief on God. God forbid. You know, you and I are just like Adam. Our sin is our fault. It's our fault. And what we deserve for it is damnation. That's what we deserve. And for we're damned for our sin, you think of the harm that we cause to the people around us in our lives because of our sin. My sin is my fault. And I've never repented. I've never truly begged for mercy until my sin is all my fault. And I know God would be right in sending me to hell for it. I've never begged for mercy and I've never received mercy until I see this is what I deserve. I'm guilty. It's my fault. Now, God saves sinners who are fallen in Adam. He saves them by his grace. Isn't that the sweetest story that's ever been told to mankind? God saves sinners by his grace. Oh, the destruction and death that Adam caused by his sin. But God's given us the good news to go tell sinners God saves sinners by his grace. Not by your merit, because you don't have any. Not by your righteousness, because you don't have any. God saves His people. He saves sinners by His grace. 
Adam had, he, he didn't have a righteousness. What he had was an innocence. And he could lose it if he disobeyed God. And he did. Sinners saved by grace have a righteousness they can never lose. Salvation in Christ is a whole lot better than being created innocent like Adam was in the garden. What good news we have for sinners. And we never would have seen that. We never would have had that sweet, sweet story of salvation by grace unless Adam fell first. Now, no excuse for what Adam did, but God sure brought good out of it, didn't he? Then the third thing I thought of was Joseph and his brothers. You all know the story of Joseph. Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And Jacob made no bones about it. Everybody knew Jacob had a favorite son, Joseph. And you know that made his brothers jealous. And you can understand why it would. I mean, what a horrible way for Jacob to treat his other sons, making Joseph the favorite. You know, Jacob was a believer, but he was not a good father. And generations paid for it. Generations down the road, he didn't teach his sons to be good fathers. And Joseph's brothers hated him because he was his father's favorite. And what they decided to do one day, we're going to kill him. Now, I mean, how evil do you got to be to want to kill your little brother? And they're getting ready to kill him, and they dug a pit and I threw him down in there. I... Maybe they're going to eat lunch or something before they killed him. Let's have a little refreshment, you know, here before we kill him. And Reuben said, boys, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery instead. And I thought, well, you know, that's good. We can get a few bucks out of this deal. And that's what they did. They sold him into slavery. And they took Joseph's coat of many colors that his father made for him. And they dipped it in animal blood. And they came back and showed it to their father, Jacob, so that Jacob would think his son, Joseph, was dead. They said, is this your son's coat? And, oh, they knew good and well he wasn't dead. And these boys, who said they loved their daddy, let their father bear this unimaginable heartbreak for nearly the rest of his life that his son was dead. And while Joseph was in slavery, he suffered too, didn't he? Now, Joseph was a slave, but he ended up getting a pretty good gig at Potiphar's house. He was in charge of all of Potiphar's business dealings. I mean, he made Potiphar a lot of money. I mean, Potiphar just quit worrying about any of his business dealings. I guess he played golf all day. He didn't have to worry, you know, about any of his business dealings because Joseph was in charge of it. But Potiphar's wife had a crush on Joseph. She tried to allure him, you know, and when he wouldn't, when he wouldn't do it, she accused Joseph of rape. And they arrested Joseph. They threw him into prison. The scripture says while they, he was there in prison, his hands and his feet hurt because those irons, they were just on him 24-7. Now there he is in this, this awful dungeon, the chained. And the only thing he did was the right thing. I mean, this is not fair. How awful is this? But while he was in prison... The Lord prospered Joseph again. He, he became the head prisoner. He's still a prisoner, but he became the head prisoner. And while he was there, he interpreted the dream of Pharaoh's butler and his baker. They had been thrown in prison. They'd upset Pharaoh somehow. He threw him in prison. And Joseph befriended them. He interpreted their dreams and told them what their dreams meant. He said, your dreams mean you're going to be set free from this place. And, uh, you know, the, the 
whichever one of them it was, the, the baker, yeah, there was a baker. He said, now, you're going to get out of here and they'll cut your head off in a few days. But he told the, the butler, he said, they're going to restore you. They're going to restore you. And when, you, when you're restored, and you're there by Pharaoh's side. You tell him about me. Get me out of this place. And they promise, oh, Joseph, we won't forget you. You know, no, no, we'll tell him about you. And as soon as they got out of that dungeon, they completely forgot about old Joseph. I mean, how unfair is this? However long it was after that, one night Pharaoh had a dream. Now, he didn't know what the dream meant, but he knew it meant something important, but he didn't know what it meant. Nobody could tell him what this dream means. Finally, the butler, remembers Joseph. He said, there's a fellow down there in the prison that can interpret dreams. So they called for Joseph right quick. He came to Pharaoh and he interpreted the dream. Joseph told him what the dream means. He said, your dream means there's going to be seven years of plenty. I mean, you just, oh, the economy's going to be booming. The crops are going to be growing. This is going to be wonderful seven years. But then there's going to be seven years of great famine. And Joseph said, Pharaoh, now here's what y'all to do. During those seven years of plenty, you ought to save up as much as you can save up. Build new barns and new silos and you save everything up that you can so that during the seven years of famine, people have something to eat. Everybody won't die. Well, Pharaoh was so impressed. He made Joseph second in command in all of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, the most powerful nation ever had been on earth up to that time. In one day, Joseph went from the prison to the palace in one day. And over the course of time, if anybody wanted anything, Pharaoh was out playing golf too. He told him, you go see Joseph. He got it all. I don't know nothing. Joseph's got it all. He's in charge. Well, during that time of famine, Joseph's brothers, his family, finally his father, they finally ran out of grain. And Jacob sent those no good boys down there to Egypt to buy grain. And oh, what a shock they had. That brother, they sold into slavery with wickedness in their heart, is on the throne. That brother that they sold into slavery, that brother that they hated so bad that they wanted, wanted to kill him, they threw him down there in a pit where, where no water was, he was crying out, asking for water, they wouldn't give him any. Now they got to ask him for grain. And they won't get any if you don't give it to them. See the picture of a sinner brought before Christ the King? We hated him without a cause. We cried crucify him. We cried, I won't have this man to reign over me. I'm not going to believe in this man. He, he's from Nazareth. Can he good think about Nazareth? The one we sinned against. The one that we yelled, crucified, put him to death. We won't have life if he doesn't give it to us. We won't have grace if he doesn't give it to us. We are totally in his hands and we've done nothing to deserve the least of his mercies. Actually, what we've done is deserve that he damn us it. Look at Genesis chapter 45. All that transpired and now Joseph reveals himself to his brethren. And look what he says to him, Genesis 45. Verse 3. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. 
And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved or angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. God's sovereign. God's the one who sent me hither. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. And you know how Joseph took care of his brethren. Look over at uh, at Genesis chapter 50. Now Jacob has died. Those brothers are, are worried. Jacob's, Joseph has just been nice to us because our father's living. Now that the buffer's gone, oh, he's going to let us have it. So verse 15 of Genesis 50. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee, now the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil. And there's no denying that. They did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not, I'll nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Now nobody ever hid the, the fact that those brothers did evil. Jacob pointed out, Joseph pointed out, you boys did evil. You did exactly what you wanted, all the evil things that you wanted to do. And there's no excuse for it. But God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He brought good out of evil. God is the one who brought me here. So I could save millions of people alive. God sent me here to keep you from starving. God sent me. See, you're to be blamed. But God's to be praised. He sent me here. Now don't you see that's a picture of Christ? That's a picture of Christ. God bringing good out of evil is such a picture of Christ. Our older brother. The one who we've sinned against. And he's the one who forgives all of our sin. And he tells us, fear not. I'll nourish you. I'll nourish you. Right, then the last thing. This is the preeminent example of God bringing good out of evil. Is Calvary. Now, everything the Jews and the Romans did to the Lord at Calvary was wrong. It's the most wicked miscarriage of justice, the most wicked outpouring of human depravity that's ever been on the face of the earth. Because humanly speaking, our Lord was innocent. He was innocent of every charge and they knew it and put him to death anyway. They knew he was innocent and they tortured him before they put him to death anyway. 
They tortured him more than any other man. Scripture says his visage was marred more than any other man. He didn't even look like a man hanging there on the cross. He just looked like a butchered piece of meat. Those men did every wicked thing that they could think up to do. And it was their fault. It was their wickedness on display. Yet when they did all the wickedness that was in their heart, what did they do? They did God's eternal will and purpose. And God brought the greatest good out of the greatest evil. God glorified himself. In that wickedness that men did, God glorified himself in saving his elect through the slaughter, the sacrifice of his son. That's what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. We won't read it, but if you want to tonight, you go home, you read it. That's what you'll find out. Peter said, you did what you wanted to do. In so doing, you fulfilled God's eternal will. This is how God's going to save his people. There'd be no salvation for God's elect if the blood wasn't shed. His blood had to be shed. His body had to be broken so that the price would be paid. God brought the greatest good, the salvation of a number, no man could number, out of the greatest miscarriage of justice there was. Only God could do that. All right. I've said all that to say this. Now listen to me. I want to apply this to you and me today. There are many folks here in this this congregation and many all across the country who are suffering greatly. I talked to a woman from another place the other day and I don't know how long we spent on the phone but she spent every minute of crying just in depths that are, are really hard to imagine sometimes that suffering is because of man's wickedness man's meanness just doing something mean to us other times it's just the effect of sin in our body the result of Adam's sin but it's suffering and it hurts I want, listen to me now. This is true. As bad as that suffering is, as much pain as it causes, as much heartache as it causes, as many sleepless nights as it causes, as much worry and, and anxiety that it causes in your heart, I promise you this. God's going to bring good out of it. I promise you he is. I promise you he is. Because that's what God does. <laughs> now, I may never see it. I may never see it. But Aaron, I don't have to see it to know God's going to keep His word, do you? I mean, I don't have to see it. This just comforts my heart. What God is doing with me, He's doing to bring good. Because that's what God does. Let's close turning over to Romans chapter 8. Don't take my word for it. Let's see what God says here. I don't care how evil, how dark the suffering. I'm not minimizing the suffering. Believe me, I'm not. I'm not minimizing the darkness. But God's going to bring good out of it. Romans 8 verse 28. And we know. Now we know this, don't we? But oh, we've got to be reminded of it. Pray often. We know 
that all things work together. All things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now that's God's providence for his people. Don't you love that? Well, am I going to start questioning God's providence when he causes me pain? No, he's sending me through that to bring me here. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now what should we then say to these things? Well, if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now when you're laying there in that turmoil, in that trial, you're now God saved you. He's revealed himself to you. He's been gracious to you. Now you just because you're hurting doesn't mean God quit loving you. It doesn't mean God forgot about you for a minute. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that trial, that pain, that suffering, that can separate you from the love of Christ? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? As it's written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we know that, don't we? Hope that's a good reminder. God's going to bring good. He always brings good out of evil. Let's bow together. Our Father, oh, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices, but that you've seen fit to teach your people by your spirit through your word. Father, we're thankful. And I beg of you that you take your word and that you glorify yourself through it. That you apply it to the hearts of your people. Enable us to see and rest in the glory of Christ our Savior. If we'll see, if you will show us your glory, all these other things will sink back into some insignificance. Father, bless your people for your sake, we pray. It's in Christ's name, for his sake, for his glory, we pray. Amen. All right, Sean.